A great danger in the pastoral ministry of the word is that a pastor will have the voice of God drowned out by the voice of economics, the voice of politics, the voice of entertainment, and the voice of the clamor of the ministry. What happens when pastors fail in the ministry of the word? That's the question John Piper answers from Malachi 2, 1 to 9 in this episode of Light and Truth. This sermon was originally preached at Bethlehem Baptist Church on November 8, 1987. Last week, we focused on the curse of careless worship from chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. And we saw Malachi driving the word of God against the priests in verse 6 of that chapter. If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? But the sense you get as you read the rest of chapter 1 is that it's not just the priests who are coming in for the indictment. For example, when you read verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Now, I think there were a lot of cheats out there, not just in the priesthood. A lot of people had flocks of sheep and they loved the profits of those sheep and they took the no good sheep and gave them to God and, and kept the, the biggest profits for themselves. But in today's text, it is even more directly focused on the priests exclusively. Verse 1 makes that real clear. And now, O priests, this command is to you. Now, that raises a question for us. For whom does this text have relevance today? Are there any priests today? What became of the Old Testament priests? Is their office picked up in the New Testament or in the church in Minneapolis today? To whom should I address this text today? That's the first question we have to, to try to answer. Well, when you go to the New Testament, what do you find? with regard to, to priests in the church. What you find in summary is this. There is no official priesthood in the New Testament. That is, no officers in the church, pastors, elders, deacons, are called priests in the New Testament at all. Anywhere in the New Testament, there is no official priesthood. Why? Here's a word from Hebrews. The priests were many in number in the Old Testament because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Christ is the one replacement, the official replacement for the Old Testament priesthood for two reasons. His life is indestructible. He never dies. And 
His sacrifice was absolutely all-sufficient and once for all and complete at Calvary. And therefore, there is no official priesthood in the Christian church, according to the New Testament. Here's another word from, from Hebrews 9. When Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once for all into the holy place. Once for all, he entered into that place where priests used to go. Taking not the blood of calves and bulls, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It's finished. The priesthood is over because the offering up of Christ himself and the interceding of Christ in heaven now in the holy place has put an end to the official priesthood. Therefore, the New Testament does not have a priesthood officially. I say officially because, as you know well, at least in three places in the New Testament, no, five places, twice in First Peter and three times in the book of Revelation, you Christians are called a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood, a kingdom priest to our God, which simply means that you don't need any mediator between you and God, save the one high priest, Jesus Christ. So in a sense, Christ is our one high priest. We are the Levitical priesthood. We enter with our high priest into the very holy of holies and boldly lay our claims before God in the name of Christ and receive grace to help in time of need. And we have no need of a human confessor and we have no need of a mediation of this forgiveness in a weekly sacrifice called the Mass. And therefore, there is no need for a priesthood in the Christian church. And it is no accident, I believe, that the name was dropped in the New Testament, save for the people of God. It is not a clerical title in the New Testament. I don't believe it should be in the Christian church. Now, that raises another question. Are there any duties of the priest in the Old Testament that are taken over and continued in the pastoral ministry in the New Testament? And the answer of our text this morning is a resounding yes. Let's look at verse 7. Of chapter 2, and you'll see this right away. Verse 7 of Malachi 2 says, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. Men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. In other words, the priests were teachers in the Old Testament. And this part of their duty is continued on into the church of the New Testament. And we know this because it says, for example, in, in Ephesians 4:11, that Christ, when he ascended on high and took his priestly office up at God's right hand and in the Holy of Holies, gave to the church pastors and teachers to equip the priests, the saints, the priests for the work of the ministry. Or it says in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 2, that there ought to be overseers in the church who are able to teach. Or it says in 1 Timothy five seventeen that the church should give honor to elders, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So, yes, there is a group of men in the church charged with the office of teaching and moral leadership, and they pick up 
that dimension of the Old Testament priesthood, but the New Testament very wisely, under the inspiration of the Spirit, drops the title priest, lest there be any sacrificial dimension to this pastoral ministry. So I conclude from Malachi 2, 1 to 9 in reflecting on its relation to the New Testament that it is a very relevant text for us today concerning the pastoral ministry and that the failure in the duties of the priestly ministry discussed in um, verses 1 to 9, which all focus on the ministry of the word, would be just as much failures today in the pastoral ministry. And therefore, this is an incredibly timely Word, But here's another question that I raise before I get into the text. Why should you care? You aren't pastors. Most of you aren't. I have a few listening. But most of you are not clergy, pastors, call of God to be one of those pastor teachers who will give account one day for the souls of the flock. Why should you care about a message that relates to the pastoral failures or the priestly failures in this text? Four reasons why you should care. Number one, I'm going to die someday, and it will be your responsibility to call a new preaching pastor. And most churches are incredibly ill-equipped to do that. Incredibly ill-equipped. Which is why so many pastors are called who are doctrinally unfit for the work. Therefore, if you are to fulfill that congregational charge, to call a pastor, you should know the biblical vision of the pastoral ministry. Second reason, you should pray for the pastoral leadership of the church. But how do you pray with intelligence, insight, power, confidence, if you don't know the biblical vision of the pitfalls and dangers and possibilities and hopes and dreams of the pastoral ministry? Third, it is your biblical responsibility to hold the pastoral staff accountable to fulfill its biblical mandate. Now, that might sound like a contradiction to Hebrews 13, 17, where it says, submit yourselves to the pastoral ministry. Be a, be a submissive and responsive people. I don't think there's a contradiction there. I think it's possible to have a submissive that is, supportive attitude toward the pastoral leadership of the church and still be the ones who have the last word in holding pastors accountable. You see, in the congregational form of church government, which we have and which we believe is biblical, the buck stops in the pew. That is, the people, the body of Christ, are the last court of appeal in church discipline. That's very plain from Matthew 18, 17. And the last court of appeal in matters of doctrine and in matters of order. You must hold us accountable to fulfill the biblical vision of the pastoral ministry. But how are you going to do that if you're not taught what the biblical vision is of the pastoral ministry? That's number three. Number four is this. It is so encouraging to the pastoral staff when people respond with intelligence and understanding to their ministry. What I have in mind here 
is a terrific, grand, joyful union of vision in the pew and in the pulpit and in the hospital room and at funerals and at weddings and in the counseling office and at fellowship gatherings, this deep, shared, harmonious vision of why we do what we do. If there is a common, deeply held vision about why pastors do what they do, and the people in their faces, in their demeanor, in their whole deportment toward the leadership in each other, show that they are affirmative and with understanding are excited about what the ministry is doing, well, it's just tremendously encouraging and life-giving to the pastoral ministry. But how will that vision of understanding and camaraderie ever emerge in a church where people are never taught the biblical vision of the ministry of the word? Reason number four. It's relevant. If the church is to be what it's going to be, this text, though it's addressed to me and these men on the platform with me, it is very relevant for you. The Great Awakening ended in the 1740s. You remember this? And do you know what happened after the great wave of awakening was passed? There were many clergy in the 1750s, 60s, 70s who reacted very negatively to the strong Reformation Calvinistic foundation of that revival movement in those days in the preaching of Edwards and Whitfield and the tenants. They reacted so strongly that they moved into Arminianism, which didn't even exist in this country for a century of our existence, just about. Into Arminianism, and then led by Charles Chauncey in Boston, a liberal congregational minister, right on through Arminianism into Unitarianism and Universalism. And today, 200 years later, you can feel the ice in New England air. I was out there three weeks ago talking to pastors and speaking in three different contexts about this. And all of them trace it back to the latter part of the 18th century. And what has happened in the churches as pastor after pastor defected from great Reformation doctrines and embraced liberal and Unitarian thinking in New England. And it is there, two centuries of destruction, would that Charles Chauncey had only committed adultery. And so the worst priestly failure is a failure in the ministry of the word and truth. When God predicted the ruin of his people in Amos 8, he said it would happen by a famine and not a famine of food. Listen. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and they shall not find it. That's the famine that will destroy the people of God. The most devastating priestly failure is the failure of the word. And that brings us to our text. What you see, for example, in, in verses 2, 8, and 9 are five failures of priestly ministry. 
in the Old Testament, which would apply today to pastoral ministry. And then in verses 5, 6, and 7, there is a description of a successful priesthood. So what I'd like to look at with you in the last few minutes is just two verses, verses 1 and 2. Let's read them together. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. There are two priestly failures mentioned in verse 2. Did you see them? Number one, the failure to listen to God. And number two, the failure to have a heart for God's glory. Let's talk about those just for a moment, one at a time. First, if you will not listen, I will send the curse upon you. You see, a great danger in the pastoral ministry of the word is that a pastor will have the voice of God drowned out by the voice of economics, the voice of politics, the voice of entertainment, and the voice of the clamor of the ministry. One of the most frightening things in my life is the possibility that I might wake up some morning, read the sacred page, and hear no voice from God. It's all over. Why is it all over? Why would that be so terrible? Look at the last line of verse 7 for the answer to that question. Who, who is a priest? Who is a pastor? Who are the ministers of the word? They are the messengers of the Lord of hosts. Now, there's a difference between being a lecturer and being a messenger. A herald comes into a city and he says, Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. In the name of the king, I read. And he gives a message to the people. A lecturer takes a book and explains sentences. Now, a sermon ought to have a good dose of teaching in it. Because you've got to root your message in the word. But preaching is different from lecturing. And if a man doesn't come to a people of God without a message from God... He is no pastor. He is no priest. He is no minister of the word in the pulpit. But you can't herald what you don't hear. And so the great failure of the priesthood and the pastor it would be the holy book has no voice anymore from God. It is dead. It is blank. It is silent. And the second failure with which I close is also here in verse 2. If you will not lay it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send the curse upon you. Now note very carefully the wording of that sentence. The point of that sentence is not that the pastor fails to make the glory of God the center of his theology or his preaching. That's not the point. The point is he fails to lay it 
on his heart. You know what that means. He has no passion that God be glorified. The glory of God may be a part of his theology. It may be the center of his theology. But he has no heart for the glory of God. It doesn't burn in his soul that God is dishonored by sin and unbelief. And so the question you have to ask as the congregation who must hold your ministry accountable to have the the biblical vision is, can you hear it in his praying as well as his preaching? Can you hear it in his study? Can you hear it in his playing as well as his praying? Does it come out? Again and again and again, the glory of God, like the the dial on a compass that just zeroes in on a magnet of truth, or like a weather vane that, that's blowing in a heavenward wind. Does it come back again and again from the leadership of this church that the glory of God is the great passion of the people of God and the spokesman of God? Surely, surely, the most important thing for you to watch for is, am I praying? Am I holding accountable? Is my pastor laying it to heart to glorify the name of God? So I just end with this admonition. Three things. Desire that kind of pastor in order to have a biblical desire. Second, be that kind of people who love the word and the glory of God. Third, pray for that kind of pastor until you have that kind of pastor. To the glory of the name of our great God and Savior. Amen. This is Light and Truth, God-centered preaching to help you see Christ clearly and treasure Him truly. I'm your host, Dan Kruver. Thank you for listening. On our next episode, John Piper continues our series, Love That Makes Us Tremble, with a sermon titled, The Tree of Successful Ministry. I hope you'll join us. For more resources, visit DesiringGod.org.